Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. Our next guest on Be Brave at Work is Sean Murray. Sean is the founder and president of Real-Time Performance, a leadership training and organization development firm based in Seattle, Washington. With over 25 years of experience working with executive teams, Sean's clients have included Apple, Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, Amazon, State Farm, Boeing, Marriott, PepsiCo, Starbucks, and many, many others all of those very large and global firms. Sean writes regularly on his blog, Real-Time Performance. He publishes a bi-weekly newsletter called Murray on Leadership, and he also hosts The Good Life, a podcast which focuses on the values, principles, and habits that contribute to leading a meaningful and flourishing life. Sean is also the author of the book, If Gold is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together for Olympic Glory the story of a team of volleyball players who joined the U.S. men's national volleyball team in anticipation of competing at the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Sean, welcome to Be Brave at Work. Ed, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on the show. I gave a somewhat light overview of your past, yet I think our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about you and how you have come to do what you're currently doing in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, you know, I got started in this business in the late 90s. I graduated from the University of Oregon with an MBA and with an emphasis on organization development and spent a little time with a GE, a GE Capital in Stanford, Connecticut at their Center for Learning and Organizational Excellence. And pretty quickly after that, I, I left GE. That was the years of Jack Welch, by the way, you might remember. Very I do remember. Did you, know, you did you did, yeah, yeah. did you leave or did he kick you out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was what was the term? Uh, rank and yank was what we called that system they had back then. I left. I was on the East Coast for that stint, and I'm really kind of a West Coast guy. I'm based out of Seattle, and and my family was here, and I just decided that's where I wanted to be, and so I decided to start a company in leadership and organization development. I actually started with uh, a 360 feedback, real-time performance, my firm that I founded in 1999, was started as a, as a 360 feedback company. And we developed an application for collecting data for 360 feedbacks where you get feedback from your boss and your, your peers and your direct reports. And it helps you identify your strengths and weaknesses as a leader. 
And uh, it was really a technology firm. It was kind of the heyday of the dot-com days. And we raised some money and we got some things going and did some development and hired a development team and, and got our burn rate up. And, and I, I, I went through all of the, the cycles of being a high-tech CEO with the ups and downs. And eventually, we ran out of capital and we had to make our business profitable without raising any more money. And it, so I, suffice to say, I went through years of growing a sales team, developing a product, you know, getting clients, all those things. And uh, eventually we sold the technology for the 360 feedback, but I kept the consulting because I really enjoyed the consulting around the leadership and organization development. And, and that's sort of how I got into the, to what I'm doing now is uh, starting a, a technology company, eventually selling it and sticking with the technology. And I've always enjoyed working with leaders, working with teams. And so that's sort of kind of the quick background on me. Well, thanks. And while our topic today is not 360 assessment tools, I'm a big fan of 360 assessment tools as a leadership coach. And I know every one of my clients who have participated in a 360 have learned a lot more about how people experience them in the workplace than they would have known if they didn't. And as I like to tell clients, if there's anybody at your company who should know what people think about you, it's you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, was, isn't that the the saying from ancient Greece, I think it was inscripted above the Oracle at Delphi, know thyself, right? And that's one of the most important things you can do as a leader is know your strengths and weaknesses. And it's not, it's a little uncomfortable at times to figure that out. But I always used to tell people, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to go to the dentist, but you still got to go to the dentist. You know, you got, you got, there's things you got to do and getting feedback is one of them. You know, Ken Blanchard said feedback was the breakfast of champions. I kind of like that one too, but I, I think it's important. I, I agree with you. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also uh, maybe inspirational for me to think about creating a 360 that focuses as well on bravery, right? <laughs> respect yeah. to how brave are you in the workplace or how brave do you need to be in the workplace? I don't know that any 360, unless it's a competency model component, focuses or talks a little bit of specifically about bravery? You know, I, I don't know one, but I think that's really fascinating. You know, I, I think there are 360s that are focused on different aspects of leadership, you know, authenticity, integrity. And I think bravery would be a really interesting one. There's certainly enough there to mine. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd love, Sean, to talk for a little bit about your book, If Gold is Our Destiny, because when we think about professional athletes, it's important to remember that for them, that is their workplace, that people who are on volleyball teams or play golf or baseball don't only play when we see them on TV. They are practicing all the time, every day. They are working with other people. They have leadership structures and models. And, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about not, you know, somewhat about the book itself, but maybe have you correlate some examples or observations about bravery as it pertained to the volleyball team that went to the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah. Bravery it shows up in many ways in this story, in the book of the 1984 U.S. Men's Olympic Volleyball Team, and also in professional sports, as you mentioned. And it's it's an important component in leadership. And just to maybe give you one example, kind of a quick sketch of, of this particular team and what was going on and why they needed bravery at certain points. You know, this was a team of all-stars, you know, super talented team of individuals that was having some trouble coming together as a team. They had a coach that 
was trying to get them to be more cohesive, to uh, build the kind of culture and structure that would allow them to perform at their highest level. And there were there were some cliques and there were some groups of some were from the East Coast, some were from the West Coast. Uh, there were players that played at UCLA and USC, and so they were they were not playing at the highest level. And I talked to the coach about, you know, well, what, what were you going to do? In 1982, this team was 13th in the world. So they were, you know, two years away from the Los Angeles Olympics and they were 13th in the world. They really wanted to medal. And so what the coach did was, is he, he decided that what the team needed to do was to have some kind of shared significant life experience outside of volleyball that would help bring the team together. And this was a really brave step. And I mean, this was fairly young coach. He was a former player himself in the national team. He knew the importance of a team coming together. And he decided to enroll the team in an outward bound experience three weeks through the Abajo Mountains in the Canyonlands National Park area of Utah in the middle of winter, snowshoeing, 70 pound packs, 100 miles hiking, and it, it, it was an incredibly brave and courageous step. And the players didn't know why they were out there, really. They didn't fully understand the reasoning to go on a trip like this, and they didn't want to be there. Yet, when they came, something happened on that uh, journey, and when they came back, they had trust. They trusted in each other, and the way they worked together on the court was different, and it contributed to their success. It helped them along their journey towards 1984, where they did eventually end up winning a gold medal. Well, this story and part of what you're sharing, Sean, I think is fantastic because, you know, to take a team of all-stars on an outward bound journey for three weeks, I'm sure there were people who, as you said, either didn't want to go or thought it was a waste of time or thought it was a joke or, you know, diminished the thoughts of the coach in respect to what that coach was hired to do, et cetera. I would imagine, and perhaps you, in speaking with some of the players or folks, heard some of this about people kind of, for lack of a better term, poo-pooing the idea. Yeah. Say, you know, why are we doing this? We should be out playing volleyball. Yeah, that that's exactly the sentiment. And I mean, it was, there was a feeling that you get better at playing volleyball by playing volleyball. You know, you get better at this sport in the gym, working hard at these skills. And I don't want to diminish the skills. I mean, everyone knows you're not going to win if you're not jumping high and blocking and serving well and passing and setting and doing all the things that you need to do to be successful on the court. But the coaches believed that the X factor, the difference between 13th in the world and number one in the world, we're talking about the very elite programs of the world. We're talking about people who are at the absolute peak. How do you differentiate? Because every country in the world has great volleyball players, at least at that level. You know, the teams from Poland, from the Soviet Union, from Italy, from Brazil, these teams were at the top of their game as well. They can jump, they can set, they can hit. So what's the difference? And the difference was, according to uh, Doug Beal, the head coach, the difference was how they worked together as a team. So if they were really going to go get over that hump, they had to figure out how to work better as a team. And they thought the best place to do that was outside of volleyball, which is, you know, this is a big step. This, that's the courageous step there. And uh, not all the players understood, even when they came back, the value of going on that trip. Uh, some did. And, you know, one thing about Outward Bound, it's not a guided trip. 
you know, a lot of people think you go out there with a guide. They, they were called instructors. And what instructors do is they gradually hand over responsibility for the, the trip or for leading these groups to the individuals in the groups themselves. And, and so over time, over the three weeks, the players had to learn how to do everything they needed to do to survive. They also needed to work together to survive. And that's important. Well, I love how the coach positioned it, because when I think about the need to be brave at work, the context of our interaction is almost more important than what it is specifically, I have to say. So the coach didn't say, hey, we're going to go do Outward Bound for three weeks. I hope he started with, I want us all to have a shared significant life experience, right? That we will play better as a team if we share something together as a team significant that we'll remember and that will impact us and not, hey, we're going to go climb a mountain for three months. Yeah, yeah. The the context is important in how you tee it up and how you set it up and how you position it. And certainly they tried to sell it in, in that way. And it did fall on some deaf ears at the early on. And, and even when they got back, as I said, some, some players were sort of bitter that they had to go through it. They didn't fully understand. Uh, but that's the courageous step. You know, there were people in the volleyball community that thought the coach, Doug Beal, was crazy. You know, <laughs> that, uh, right, right. That's what I'm, that's what yeah. I'm saying. I'm sure there were people who thought this was a ridiculous waste of time. Yeah. And, and, and so people started asking for, you know, him to be replaced. And there was, there was actually a very, very talented player. Many people believe the most talented player that decided not to go on the trip and just couldn't make the commitment that the head coach was demanding of the players, you know, better than most of the players on the team, but did not eventually make the team because he decided not to go on this trip. He also decided he wanted to play professionally in, in Europe during their training period and he wanted to play on the beach the, the coaches had to make a decision do we want a player who's not who's really good but not fully committed or do we want a player who's maybe not quite as good but extremely committed to the team and they went with the player that was extremely committed to the team and the team actually got better and that was another courageous decision yeah that reminds me of a basketball story and I'm kicking myself cuz I can't remember who the player is even though all of our listeners will who in the last minute of a game, and it was a championship game, told the coach to put him in and throw him the ball. And the coach said, no, you're not the one who's going to get the ball because everybody's going to be covering you. We're going to throw it to Sean. And the player said, if you don't toss me the ball, I'm not going out. And the coach said, sit down. And he sat down and everybody in the audience, of course, was like, why is our number one player sitting down in the last minute of the game? And you know, I think they threw the ball to the guy the coach wanted the ball to go to, and I think he made the, uh, you know, the shot, and they won the game. But it's a similar situation where sometimes a star player, and this is true for teams and organizations, can get so caught up with their own stardom and their own uh, status that they can't correlate and negotiate this type of activity with others. Yeah, that's a great story. It sort of reminds me of Bill Russell and Ed, you're in the Northeast, right? In the Boston area. Yes. Right. Yes. And so, you know, we just lost Bill Russell. Uh, he actually was in, he lived in Seattle the last few years of his life. So he was kind of local to me out here. I'm, I'm uh, reaching you from Seattle today. And, and Bill Russell epitomized this idea of putting the team first. And I think that's a very courageous move too. And, uh, and that, that story that you just told this definitely reminds me of, of that. And, and it was a theme that came up in writing the book was 
you know, to really be the best you can be as a team, you know, to reach your full potential, the individuals have to put the success of the team above themselves. And that can be very painful at times. It may be that you spend more time on the bench than you actually play because you're, you're a very specific role, but yet you're very important to the team and you have to, and you have to understand that and, and accept it. And everybody else has to accept, accept it. And so that's, that's an important element in any team, to any team success. Well, when you began your story talking about this team, you described them as a team of all-stars individually, right? And so this happens in organizations where a team of people are brought together. So let's say we're going to acquire a company or we're going to roll out a new product or we're putting in a new infrastructure in our organization. We bring together all these top players who are great at their individual roles, but maybe have not ever worked well together and undermanaged. The likelihood of having, you know, 12 superstars who all want to do their own thing and not work together is potentially greater than having a great coach who says, hey, the only way this is going to work is if we all work together and not independently. And that had to be one of the influences of this team, right, with this coach recognizing that all of these players individually are superstars. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to get to the level of being on the Olympic team, you know, all of the players at the Olympic level were the best player on their teams in high school, in college, on their club teams. They had only experienced being the best. And that means they're on the court all the time. And now all of a sudden they find themselves on a national team that's rapidly becoming the best team in the world. And only six players can be on the court at any given time. And it requires a different mindset, a different understanding of what it means to be on a successful team. And that was really hard for a lot of players. And Outward Bound, that experience helped the players understand the importance of that. And, you know, when you've got to survive in winter, being out there, they relied on each other for survival. You know, because imagine being in snowshoes with a 70-pound pack and you're six foot seven. You know, you're pushing through the snow. Someone's got to break the trail. And if someone's breaking the trail for you, that's a huge advantage. That person then goes to the back of the line. So just getting from point A to point B, they had to work together. Well, when they got to point B, someone has to clear the snow out. Someone's got to put the tent up. Someone's got to light the fire, gather firewood, fix the meal. I mean, this took, it was a group effort and survival was a group effort. And what they learned was winning is a group effort. What they told me was the second team, you know, they may have spent a lot of time on the bench, but they made the first team better in practice every day. And that they played a very, very important role in, in winning that medal. Well, I think our listeners would be angry with me if I didn't ask you to explicitly tell us how the story ends. So if uh, not to ruin your book, but uh, how did they do at the Olympics? Yeah, well, you know, they went through Outward Bound and there's one kind of important step between Outward Bound and, and the Olympics. And it was a, it was another good example of bravery at work and being courageous. So the team knew that they needed to get better. And the way to get better in, in those days, and, and this is a very often common strategy, is to look to the best teams in the world and copy them. And I'm not saying that's not a bad strategy. It's just that's what they did. They went to the Soviet Union. And they said, well, maybe we should play like the Soviets. But the Soviet players were a different body style. You know, they were these big, tall guys that could block. And the Americans were more nimble. They were shorter. They were quicker. They came from playing on the beach. Wasn't a good fit. And so they went to the Japanese. And the Japanese had 
more nimble players, a little bit shorter, but they had a very specific system and the coaches were learning from the system. The Japanese coaches were giving out the secrets to their system. And the American coaches said, why are you doing this? And the Japanese coaches said, well, only, only the Japanese can play like the Japanese. In other words, they were saying, you know, this, this system works for us culturally. And if you try to copy it, it's like a Xerox copy. Each generation is degraded, right? So the Americans had to figure out their own system that would leverage the unique abilities of the players on the team. And, and, and so the courageous move was to invent a new way of playing volleyball. And the coach told me, he said, we, we weren't afraid to look foolish because they would put different offenses out there, different positions on the court that had never been seen before. And people would think that they were crazy and foolish, but they eventually discovered through trial and error and working with the players, a new way of playing volleyball that required a little more specialization. It leveraged the unique kind of creative ability of the beach players. And after that, they started winning. And of course, that happened after Outward Bound. I don't know if they could have done that sort of creative innovation if uh, they hadn't gone through Outward Bound. But with that innovation, they started winning. And a lot of people might remember that in 84, the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries boycotted the Olympics because the U.S. had boycotted the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. And so the best team in the world at the time was the Soviet Union. And uh, the United States did not get to play the Soviets at that Olympics. But a few months before, they went to the Soviet Union, actually to the Ukraine, and they played the Soviets in four matches and they won all four matches in the Soviet Union, which just didn't happen in those days. The Soviets were sort of a, sort of like the Soviet hockey team from 1980, if you remember that, Ed, and the Miracle on Ice. The Soviet volleyball team was equally as dominant in the world. So the U.S. beat the Soviets a few months before, and then when they got to the Olympics, they were on a winning streak, and they lost one match to Brazil a couple, couple days before the final event, before the gold medal match. and people thought, uh-oh, here we go again, because they had a, a history of getting close and not quite making it. But they met Brazil again for the gold, and it was the most lopsided victory ever in an Olympic gold medal match for, for men's volleyball, and they won the gold. Wow. Wow. That is a fantastic story, Sean. And I'm sure people would love to read your book. Again, it's called If Gold is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together for Olympic Glory. And if people want to read more about you and the work that you're doing, Sean, where can they go? Well, my website is realtimeperformance.com. That's where I publish uh, articles. And I also have a podcast called The Good Life. And you can find it uh, from a link there at Real Time Performance and also all of my social media. Fantastic. Well, Sean, once again, thank you so much for being a guest on Be Brave at Work. Thanks for having me, Ed. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. And we hope you join us on our next podcast conversation as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at bebraveatwork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio everywhere online. Do you have something to say, yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do, yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. 
Have a great week.